Herald of Steel beckons. War on the horizon. Chaos reigns supreme. But who will save us? Beckons of the Herald of Steel is a 5th edition homebrew campaign. It is a high fantasy and old school flavored campaign run by me, the young Rognard, and my friends. Let's meet those friends now. I am Anthony Santiago, and I'm playing Norhill Hammerstone, Dwarven Fighter. I'm Jared, and I'll be playing Jarzak, the Orc Warlock. I'm Ryan, and I'm going to be playing Klika, the Goblin Sorcerer. I'm Veronica. I'll be playing Anton, the Human Cleric. While many prophecies are written, our story has yet to be completed. Follow us into adventure. Welcome back to the podcast. It is I, Grognard, the only young Grognard, kicking it to you live with another episode of the Beckons of the Herald of Steel podcast campaign thing. Wherever it is. Uh, we're still kicking it in the King's Adventure with the quest Gorgareth. Uh, the last episode, rather tumultuous, rather dangerous, rather draconic. Uh, but now we have minus one dragon as an issue. Eindindrith is dead, and our party, uh, we didn't really say we gathered the blood, but we did bushwhack uh, Starbreeze. And then when he didn't go down on the first swing, uh, he looked Klika dead in the eyes and said, what are you doing before she swung again? And so with this in mind, our party have Rakrata, the chief of the bugbears and the goblinoids of the uh, Kiritos Mountains, who relocated uh, kind of unfairly. Uh, they're heading out, heading over to the east, heading in the general direction of where Norhill said he basically had some land for them to chill out as long as they were willing to fight the good fight against the big bad guys. Um, but as they're heading out and leaving, dragons destroyed, and our party are sort of settling in now to, uh, what, wake up Starbreeze, collect the loot, enjoy the spoils of victory, and then head home down a fucking mountain? So uh, first things first, as far as the loot goes, just for the sake of uh, delineating this and taking care of it off the air, we have quite a few fancy schmancy things that we found uh, during the party's long rest. They're going to be looking over this stuff as well as getting their uh, uh, spells back and all that fun jazz. Um, Ronnie, was Anton going to actually prepare tongues and be able to cast this? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, I guess the first thing to go over, apart from the giant pile of coinage with like 15,000 silver and 125 platinum pieces, uh, as well as a handful of diamonds worth five, uh, worth 200 gold pieces each and one big jumbo diamond worth uh, 1,000 gold pieces. Um, there's also a handful of scrolls, three scrolls to be exact, uh, each one of them locked away in what appears to be like a metal canister, almost like some sort of like pipe bomb kind of looking thing, as if the gnomes kept it perfectly sealed. And as you crack them open, undoing like a little locking mechanism and looking inside, uh, you can tell that these scrolls are untouched by time. But the three that you can discern with your ability to now understand gnomish, there's a scroll of water breathing. There is a scroll of blight. And the last scroll is a scroll of anti-life shell. Oh, boy. 
That's the good one. Yeah. Um, the collection, that's what Anton mumbles to himself as he takes a quick look and then tries to, as best as he can, pack them back away in their canisters and then store them. Pretty well. With a very satisfying little, like, like uh, automatic closing door kind of sound as the little tops close back up. Just shh. They're no longer worth their value. I open the box. Oh, well. <laughs> There's even elevator music playing inside each individual tube. <laughs> um, apart from that, we also found a bag of holding. Uh, Jarzak in the last episode also dug up the axe, the uh, giant slayer great axe there. Um, and we also found a pair of very interesting furry anklets, which were identified as anklets of the monkey. Uh, which, while attuned to these anklets, the user's feet become prehensile with toes behaving more like fingers than anything else. So who's where, Who's wielding these? Kaliga's going to take those bad boys. <laughs> yeah, put, just what we Put needed. them to use for the greater good, trust me. Something like that. Um... And then in addition, we also found a very curious looking um, uh, mace, which I guess Kleek is probably the one that feels the most drawn to this. Having traveled outside of space and time and moved on to fancier, schmancier places, such as the Land of Immortals, Kleek sort of recognizes the essence of the material that makes this mace. Um, the mace itself is kind of looks like a d10 on a stick uh it's made of very flashy and pristine metal that looks sort of opalescent in the right light but again there's 10 individual faces on the top of this sort of top looking mace um but when you handle it around obviously click is not trained to use this so she probably behaves quite a bit like uh mr anton there where she holds it upside down uh-huh. seeing how the only person she's ever known with a mace before just wields it upside down anyway. So this probably feels the most organic anyways. Um, but feeling in your hands, the master craftsmanship of this device, the otherworldliness of it, this is at least a plus two mace. But you also feel some strange like weight to it that when you swing it around, it almost feels like it draws at the energy around it as if things kind of swirl in an otherworldly way wherever this thing makes its, its movement. So... For what it's worth, it feels very powerful, very strange, and it has almost a whiff of Domero to it. And the more you get sort of your bearings of holding it and swinging it around and giving a few tests, you can tell that there's like nuclear levels of magic radiating from this thing. And it's not magic that you can actually understand. With every swing you take, magic radiates from it in different ways, shapes, smells, weights, densities. Things just every single time seem to percolate in odd and unpredictable ways. And naturally, you hand it to Jarzak instead, saying, I think you might like this. Clicker hands it to Jarzak after thoroughly investigating it with her new monkey feet. She's just been holding it with her feet. This whole <laughs> yeah. With the, the uh, fucking D10 side down. So it's just a stick that she's sort of been swinging around. Doing handstands and swinging it. But yeah, all right. That's why it's not working. You've been swinging it upside down. You got to set it to Wumbo. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah. And then amongst the rest of the rubble, you guys can see that there's plenty of, uh, I don't want to say this, there's like bits and baubles of some corpses, like some bones left behind as if the dragon may have kept personal treasures of that which they have killed, as if like keeping behind almost in a torturous way some of the uh, remaining people that it took as prisoners or, or tortured victims or something, but as everybody seems to be sorting through the coins and stacking and counting things, Norhill feels a strange pull towards one of these half-devoured skeletal corpses and looks at sort of seemingly unimpressive boots. They definitely seem like soldiers' boots. They have metal plating on the shins and a metal guard on the on the on the foot there, but for the most part, it just looks like sort of worn and and, and battered leather. But as he feels some sense of connection with it and maybe pulls them off of the uh, the body, I was listening to a past episode of the show and I, I and uh, Norhill defended stealing the axe from Ira's cult there by saying this is the spoils of war, this is a legal pilfer. So I think in the same regard, having killed the dragon, <laughs> he pulls the boots off the skeleton and says, "Spoils of war, it's all good." And as he I've spoken, of- everybody heard, "Spoils of war." Norhill's mumbling about spoils again. I was gonna say, because in that one, Klika and Jarzak were both catnapping or whatever, and Anton was reading a book. So Norhill mumbled it to himself then too, and he's doing it again. Yeah. It's just now Klika's got monkey feet. So that's really the big difference in this whole scenario. This is a perfectly lawful looting. Wait, is he talking? Did some of the bread spoil? That's not bad. I'll I'll still I'll eat it. It's fine. It tastes so much better. Sometimes I forget that your stupid gauntlet. Yeah. I forget that your gauntlet makes gross things taste good. And good things taste bad. Yeah. Don't forget that either. I'm waiting for the bread to spoil. <laughs> You're feeling like moldy food. That's why, yeah. But um, uh, yeah, but as you look over the boots and pull them off, you recognize that the road-worn sort of appearance of these things is really just superficial, as the craftsmanship of them seems to be of a mastery that, you know, few in this realm could probably conjure twice. And as you look inside the sole of the boot and inside on the tongue, there seems to be a marking that once you look closer is actually a name. And as you look it over a little closer, you can tell that there's a series of names that seem to travel down the boot all the way down to sort of where the, uh, you know, your shin kind of meets foot. So it seems like this has had a few owners, but each one's etched their names into this boot, or at least these boots, rather. Um, and yeah, the first boot that you see on the list is uh, Elgarth Morningstone, which definitely smacks of a dwarvish name and being a bit of a historical guy one of the uh, clan, you know him to be one of the very first dwarves to settle the mountains with which you now call, sorry, that you now call home. So seeing these boots and feeling that weird kinship to them, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's probably a powerful feeling to some extent. Uh, uh, Norhill's going to read through all the names and you know just get an idea of what he knows about the histories of the different people on them. Which I'll say because of the sake of them all being 
historical. Um, the ones that would definitely stand out are the ones that you know would be more historically relevant. So I'm just going to let you have that, that you know those ones. And the ones like the halfling or whatever, I mean, the gnome probably don't stand out because it's probably like some guy found it in the trash and he's like, ooh, boots. But, yeah. Oh, what a noble you want to go through the names? Uh, yeah, so the names that I came up with uh, for the boots uh, include, Dan already said, Elgarth Morningstone, uh, but then Crom Morningstone, uh, Genbril Sternsong, Isle Ruin of House Moonshade, uh, a whole line of human heroes, starting with one uh, Rolf Havenrow, and finally uh, the gnome Traver Huckborough. And so, from what you know of this, these boots belonged presumably all to fighting men and, and fighting women, I guess, and soldiers and just sort of, you know, I mean, they're just boots that have marched a thousand, thousand miles. And so looking them over and seeing how worn they are, there's almost like a weird drive to slip them onto your own feet. And once you do, there's probably a sense of like the weight of the world being upon your shoulders, but almost a strengthening of your spine as you put them on that like the weight that you feel having carried like six generations of, of whooping ass and walking miles. It's almost like it's all relieved by the pride of wearing them. And thus, um, yeah. And I suppose, uh, yeah. With the uh, magical effect, obviously of wearing these Norhill feels sort of, I don't know how I would describe it. I don't know how you want to describe it, but the inclination there to uh, speak into existence, I guess the words there, the activating terms, but yeah, I don't know. Would Norhill just feel compelled to say it? Or do you think? Maybe that's what the, maybe that's what the names or it's on the other soul from the boot with all the names on it. Makes a lot more sense than anything else, which uh, written in the other boot, uh, is for glory I march and yeah, yeah uh, so uh, Norhill uh, tests it out for glory I march and so as you guys see Norhill now starts pumping his old footsteps around the place and starts moving at a, a very remarkable speed one that was much more than it was before as he pumps with a sort of stern ferocity and a, a marching charge as it were but yeah very well. Like but, looks yeah. on in horror, realizing that we're going to have to walk so much faster everywhere now because Norhill always set the pace. It also doesn't seem to last all that long. No, after about a minute, it seems to wear off and you come to a bit of a standstill and look back up at everybody who's been counting out the coins, resting, tending to wounds and everything. And that's when Starbreeze pokes his head through the little ladder hole behind you guys at the end of this rest. And he just yells out, he says, um, hi. Oh, Klinko would have just left him down there. Klinko would have... I mean, you sure as fuck didn't bring him up. Yeah, well, I didn't realize that was our entire rest. Klinko would have, like, gone down and, like, just talk out with him until he woke up. But so if he wakes up and looks at you, we bring him up here with us. You know, I also figure you guys probably would have rested downstairs in the bugbear camp, where it's actually warm with some decent tents and stuff. So I guess he peeks his head into out of the tent and says it with a fat lip and a black eye. 
So what would you like to say to that? As Starbreeze now looks upon you angrily. Clicker just pulls her dagger and goes to hit him again and just stops and like, I gotcha. Psych. He looks he Frank. looks at you with a look of horror and then thinks about the fact that it's silent, how quietly and calmly everybody's just kind of hanging out here and presumably the same frozen spire. And as he looks around, he just turns to you guys and he says, did I didn't you didn't did we we did it yeah we, we, we did it we all did it the, won the day so he kind of looks around at everything and feels the giant swelling of his face from when he got popped by a four-year-old and he starts feeling at his face and he's like yeah i guess you guys sure did and he kind of shrugs a little bit and he says you know I recognize what you were probably trying to do back there. But I feel like I could have helped. I feel like you did help. And how did I do that? We didn't have to worry about protecting you. So we could go all out. Thanks, bud. Some quick long division in his head as he pulls apart the strands of the patronizing that you just did. <laughs> and he gives you kind of a dirty look and he says, You know, I get that I came out here a little bit too proud and trying extra hard, but I really wanted to prove myself with all this. And it's all the same with you guys. I think once we're out of here, we'll part ways and I won't bother you guys anymore. Like, I just wants you to know she she did it because Klika has seen a lot of people die for no real reason and Klika didn't want you to be one of those people that dragon wasn't wasn't some glorious conquest it was a long and slow and difficult battle. We had to use everything at our disposal just to barely scrape through. I I know that you want to prove yourself, but Starbreeze, this wasn't the time for that. It we came here to take the blood of a beast so that we might save the world and it it wasn't the time for glory or songs or anything else Klika's sorry she really is but Klika's happy that you're still here to have this conversation and if you hate Klika or never want to sing songs about any of us ever again Klika will just be happy that you get to make that decision. Real persuasion check on that. Whoop. Give me that 12. On that, he just kind of grumbles to himself a little bit, closes the flaps on the tent and goes and sits by himself near the uh, one of the dwindling fires that was left behind after the uh, Yeti's he kind of rambled on from here. Probably one of the tents caught on fire, and that's the dwindling fire left behind. But he just sits down by it, 
And you can see that his uh, loot that he has, anybody who kind of followed his march or at least sees where he is now, his loot is now within the uh, dwindling fire and burning. But with that... Uh, no, um, I'm actually going to go outside, reach into the fire, and pull out the loot to give it back to him. I will say this fire is inside, too. I mean, granted, it's in a frozen little cavern here, but like... Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it yeah. sounded like he walked into like a different room or section or something. Right, 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 right. There is the landing and everything, but yeah, okay. I mean, you managed to pull out a very burned and broken in half loot. Thorhill's going to give it a quick uh, eyeball. What's the likelihood that uh, it's it, it could potentially be repaired? Well, I think somebody's got the spell just necessary to do that. But as you pick it up and sort of hand it back to him, he says, well, why'd you go and do that? I think that you would have lived to regret it. And he says, yeah, I think a lot of people are living in regret around here. I'm just trying to be practical like the rest of you. What good is this music down here when we're going to freeze to death otherwise? I thought you would understand. Sarbreeze, there's no shame in admitting to your limitations. No great dragon slayer who ever lived to tell the tale fought a dragon on their first battle. Even like, I, wasn't I, born a great, I wasn't born a great fighting man. I'm still not one. That he's he still has that like very upset look, but I'll let you roll an inside check if you'd like. Let's see. Uh, I believe I actually have inside dirty twenty. He's certainly not mad at you, and he's certainly not mad at Klika. And if anything, having the bruise on his face goes to show that like the only injuries he sustained in this entire event, or be because somebody tried to put him in his place, telling him to shut up or because of his own foolhardiness that he got himself hurt. And so he's just mad that with the world at stake, the best he can do is fall down and get hurt and get punched into submission to not get in the way. So he's just very mad to be on this journey and realize he's sitting in the, in the baby pouch on the front of, you know, Jarzak's little holster there. You know what I mean? Little baby Bjorn thing, a little, little star breeze in it. And you can tell that he's, your words have definitely touched him, and Klika's sincerity has touched him as well. But that doesn't heal the wound of his own like loss of pride. You know what I mean? And it, what you're witnessing now is, is the fleshed-out wound. You know what I mean? The pride has been taken from him in a very blunt way. And as he looks down at the burned loot, and it, like all this information passes through with one tearful glare back at you when he mentions the practicality. And he looks down at the loot, and he says, it's destroyed anyway. It's no use. Might as well just throw it back in. Uh, so when Norhill eyeballed it, were there any parts of it, like any metal parts on it that were potentially still usable or maybe the strings are still good? I mean, I would have imagined that the strings would probably be nylon rather than drawn metal, but yeah, so they probably would have burned up pretty bad too. But yeah, as far as you can tell, it doesn't look like anything you could salvage. Uh, well, in that case, Noriel's uh, just going to look at him and say, not everybody is a warrior. Not everybody should be a warrior, even in times of war. And we all do what we can. And sometimes it's important to realize that 
what we want to do is what we can do. And sometimes those lessons are painful. What we can and can't do. Some are lucky enough that those lessons are deadly. He just looks down, puts his hands, kind of rests them on his knees, and he slumps his head down a little bit. And then he looks back up at you, and you can tell that the tears in his eyes are almost boyish at this point. I mean, he has to be at least like going on 30, but it seems like this whole bout, this whole trip has really broken this man who's kind of lived sort of a comfortable life from what you can tell, kind of bebopping around and playing music. And I'm sure he's seen his own hardships, but like this is the first time he's been pressed with like mortality. And from standing up on top of a mountain and witnessing like a country being taken over by force, by an insurmountable foe with insurmountable odds and everything stacked against them, it's like you can tell like all of a sudden he's reached a crescendo. He doesn't have the willpower to withstand this, but as he cries a little bit and tears start to roll down his face, he says, when will it end? That I can't say. Who knows? Maybe we will all fall in the attempt. But if people like you don't live, uh, to make your music and tell the stories to the next generation, then what are we fighting for? Oh, that was nice. But he just kind of sits there whimpering and sniffling to himself, and he just lowers his head. He nods a couple times in a very gentle and half-acidly like agreement with what you're saying, sort of more of just like a kind of hand-wavy kind of thing. But you can tell that it's touched him. But yeah, I imagine you go back to the rest of the group. Yeah, with that, Norhill's going to leave him with his thoughts. Anton's curious, is that, can we get to that map that he noticed in the ice? The old one? Well, that's what's can. Yeah, using the same techniques to melt it down as before, what you see sort of marked in here, planted against the wall in the ice, is a map that, like I said before, is dated to about 100 years ago, almost like on the dot. And from the way that the map is laid out, it shows the uh, the mountain range that you guys are currently on. Um, and it shows like your exact location. I mean, it shows the greater portion of Amaroth, but it shows the Sunderspine Mountains, um, which, you know, you guys are in. Uh, but it labels a couple of X's, one of them over Garrod Moor and one of them over Carrick Moor, which are the Halls of Silver and Steel. And there are a couple of other markings that sort of show battle points. You can tell from looking at this map and looking at the markings that have been labeled on it, these may actually be some of the battle plans that were used by some of the generals during the War of the Bleeding Stone. And this may have been a lookout position and a grand like planning, sort of like a, like a war room sort of thingy uh, for that war. And judging by the markings on it, this map probably belonged to whoever the general was in the uh yeah and like the, the the whole war effort is it a specific language or can i not tell from that no it's written in the common tongue there are some markings on there that are in giant um but you can read those as well and it seems more like that's just translations and shorthands as assuming that the dum-dums would be reading this dum-dum giant so it's like simplified like go here go here now you know what i mean can I, can I take that map, or is it just too immense, like, huge? I don't know. You'd be able to roll it up. It's very fragile, but you'd be able to roll it up. 
And it seems like the kind of thing that also Clico could probably fix if need be. I rolled up carefully, like a like rolling up like a fancy egg in a skillet. Okay, I'll be gentle. Is that how you did it? Yeah. But <laughs> but um okay um but yeah. What you can also tell from some of the labels on the map, the name Stormblood is mentioned a couple times on there, as if Stormblood, from historical perspectives that the party are well aware of and what they've known since, since uh, what, the, uh, the Gnomish stronghold there? You guys have known about Stormblood, but he was the general. And seeing the markings of his name over certain positions goes to show you that, yeah, they must have been here. Now, the creepiest part of all of this is that as this place is sort of cleared out with the heat and, you know, Anton's rolling up the map, Jarzak, if you're in attendance at this point, you feel a very alarming, itchy twinge on the back of your neck as with the ice, there are some like darkened ashes and bits of like black sand left behind in the corners of this little frozen corner here. And you recognize that this is not ash from flame and this is not dirt from some beach or something like that. Like this is very clearly the same blackened, like, you know, dark sands that, yeah. So it certainly seems like there's some weird connection here between these two people, these two things. And yeah. Mm. Yeah, we probably, you know, the, I have a feeling the deceiver was involved in this, but I mean, what bad things isn't he involved in? And again, I think it also makes you think once you start saying that out loud, you think about how like, Sure, what things isn't he involved in? But then you think about everything from that sort of fractal he's everywhere position. But then you start to imagine it more like a spider web or even like a series of timelined pings where certain dominoes fell at the right time in the right place. And it starts to feel like, you know, maybe the connection between Stormblood and having the deceiver around when he's making his battle plans has a lot more to do with the fact that that Outlook post there having the markings of the the deceiver as well. You know what I mean? It starts to feel like, wait a minute. Yep. I'm pretty oh. sure he kind of put that whole thing in motion. Potentially. But then again, Jarzak probably has a sullen moment when he's looking at this ancient battle map and sees Gorgareth still in the corner of the map, and you recognize maybe the deceiver didn't do it. Maybe he put that wheel in motion and he didn't mind going along for the ride. Recognizing your long journey this entire way too and remembering like, he didn't make you do stuff. <sighs> but with that in mind. Yeah, the deceiver definitely does bad things and it's all on him. Yep. There's no agency for anybody in any well, I don't know. It's also in the hands of whoever was deceived as well. You're just as guilty. No. Jarzak. <laughs> yeah, and those who attack us are also just as guilty. We're all guilty of war. Well, 
I think I see Miami what George Jack No, I think I see what George Jack is getting at. It's not about guilt or innocence. It's about the why. How deep does the deceiver's influence go? And why did he choose to take these actions or plant these ideas? Who are we to question the why of a god? I assume he just gets joy out of seeing people suffer. Tricking them, using them. I mean, he is known as the tormentor. I know we call him the deceiver because that's how he's really displayed himself. But as far as like his dark triad of evil traits go, he's commonly just referred to as the tormentor. For through his deceptions, through his guile and through his like desire for pain. I mean, more often than not, you're tormented by that sweet little cycle of pain. But yeah. So at this point, as everybody's having this sort of moral and ethical debate and being very quiet amongst themselves, thinking deeply about the implications of all this stuff, you hear a sort of quivering voice from the entryway to the dragon's chamber kind of yell out into the distance, into the whole chamber and echoes around wildly. But it sounds familiar. It sounds like the voice of the bugbear chieftain. And she shouts out, hello? And it kind of echoes on endlessly. And she says, maybe it's too late. Perhaps we can finish off the dragon if it's sleeping. Uh, Norhill, you know, bellows uh, down into the tunnels. It's all right. The dragon is dead. We are victorious. Uh, Come up into the quarters. And so after a series of... Yeah, I was going to ask what you put the blood in. Uh, My, My blood jar. Oh, Jarzak's got it? Okay. Jarzak's blood jar. Yeah, I got a jar from the first quest we went on. I got one of, like, dirt from a graveyard and one just had, like, look like blood was in it before. But it was yeah. empty now. Yeah, yeah that's from... In the stream. I'm just making sure we have, we have something with the dragon's blood in it so we don't go all the way leave get there and all of a sudden it's kind of like the whole piece of the portal it just all of a sudden it happens to be in the back pocket the whole time Kennedy. that's okay that's okay we have it because we it's a it's a non-negotiable quest item even if you destroy it it comes back just gonna make sure you never know but with that the chief as well as her assembly of bugbears and goblins who followed her up to this point They come to you guys in the chamber and the chief lets you know that they couldn't in their right mind leave and just like try to get out of here. And instead they suggested if you guys failed in your effort, they would try to double down and finish off the potentially wounded dragon, arguing that while it was stupid, they would rather die trying here where it might matter most and do whatever it takes to help finish your quest, even though they didn't really know what it was. They just figured whatever they could do to help the cause while they were here and finish the debt they owed to their people by killing the dragon. But seeing that you guys slayed it, the chief sort of offers her services and everything and wishes to join you guys on the way back to Enton, where she assumes you're headed. That's a noble instinct, and I'm happy to accept it. So... Um, having rested in here, spent all this time working around and everything, I will say, Klika, you feel a certain degree of magnetism, like you haven't felt since you were in the elven wood, and 
it seems to oddly pull you that you know what time of night it is, even though you're indoors in a frozen cavern. So there's some weird sense that seems to be pulling you in an odd way. And it seems to be the same kind of magnetism you felt that, you know, before you spoke to the Atyug. It's the same sort of magnetism you felt when you were shot up into space and then shot back down into space. It's this weird otherworldly sense that like, uh oh, like Lick Cleek is turning into a, a werewolf again. I guess Cleek will get out of bed and if there's anywhere where we can see the open sky, Cleek will go there. Okay. So you march out through the bridge that was in the dragon's lair and go out to the front where the big giant swirly bridge was, the one mm-hmm. you chose not to go to. And as you stand out there in sort of the, uh, what's it called, a promenade? Yeah, that landing there by the entrance, you can tell that the stars are out so clear. And because of how high up you are above like the cloud line here, it's just like raw moonlight and, and raw starlight. And as you look up, you can see your star is burning like so bright it's freakish and it starts to make sense as you look back up at it that you know that feeling you get when you like look at a light and you have like a tear in your eye or something you can see like the light kind of like do that weird draggy thing and like multiple light rays you you see it and feel it sort of like when you go into that weird ethereal blink sort of situation there how you like can see things in a way that's not really there and you're like outside of it Mm-hmm. you sense the light in a way that's pulling in a way that like feels otherworldly as if, if you channeled that ethereal nature, you might actually find some way of actually like experiencing the true starlight that is there. Click uh, I guess will cast blink on herself and try and tap into that further. Okay. And as you do, you get this really strange double-minded perspective where you see yourself in your true perspective, but like in your mind's eye, you see from the perspective of the stars and specifically from your star. And as you look over the entirety of Amroth, you can see Gorgareth in the distance and you can see the creeping sunlight coming from the north or the south or wherever it's coming from today. (laughs) But you can see like the whole landscape. And as you look around in your mind's eye, you feel almost this sensation that wherever the starlight is, you exist like in in a duplicity, as if like wherever you're perceiving that land, wherever the star can see, it's as if you could step through the light of the star and just occur there as well. And there's this strange sense of feeling that you got when you first came to Nomer, that it's like this same feeling that like, there's like a teleporting sort of like energy that wherever the stars are bathing, like there's almost like this, like you can just travel through it as if it was just a doorway like any other. And so with this in mind and feeling the urgency of it, it seems like your ability or your timeline that you're able to travel through this kind of portal when the stars are this bright and you're this close to them is closing. I think Clayka is going to in her sort of duplicitous view, look back at her grounded self into the cave mouth she just came from and everyone there, while also in her above view, look down at 
where the ruins of Dustwind are and just sort of feel like she's really not sure if she should do this, but like parts of her like just feels so pulled to go back and see if there's anything there. There's anything left. Yeah, and from your borderline all-seeing vision from this point, you can still see sort of smoke rising, and you see like almost like iron filings like splattered all over a map. You can see encampments of of soldiers in the Iron Maelstrom, not only surrounding Eagleheart, but sort of having vacated the premises of um, Dustwind. And it seems like they've sort of splintered into either Eagleheart or, unfortunately, into Quarrydale, where you can tell that the, the gnomish halfling lands there are pretty well infested with the soldiers at this point. Mm. But, unfortunately, Dustwind does look pretty well abandoned. Can Clica see what's going on in Enton? Like, can she see her friends or anything? No, not clearly. Again, it's more of like sort of like a Google Earth zoomed out kind of thing where you can see like general blocks and things like that. But yeah. And I will say the longer that you use this, it almost feels like you're trying to like balance like like balance bowling pins on your fingertip where you're like you can do it. And as you look too closely, you feel yourself unfocused and feel yourself kind of pulling out of it. And as you zoom out too far, you kind of like lose it as well. So there's this weird warbling where it's almost like you could imagine with a lifetime's worth of practice, this would be second nature to you. But being the first time you've had this sort of starlight vision and starlight sort of, you know, duplication of self, you feel the magnetism of where you could be and what you could be doing. But you think it's probably one shot that you'll be able to pull this off. So it feels like you could exist in Enton if you'd like to. You could, with whomever is around you based in that sort of starlight, kind of like how Domero was able to push you into it, you could foreseeably do some sort of teleportation-style travel through the starlight. And perhaps, by becoming one with the star itself, travel almost instantaneously with this group. But the fear is you might fall off your mark, you might end up elsewhere, or you might get trapped in the, the land of immortals. Uh, I but, think seeing what Klika has seen and knowing that the Iron Maelstrom is making their way into Corydale, she's going to try and get everyone up and together and outside with her. I also like the idea that you're still blinking. So like every six seconds, you're just yeah. like popping in and you're like, guys, you need to come out. Because I need to get your attention for the... <laughs> We have no time. Anton, don't forget. Please don't forget to put on your. We could all die if you don't. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, so Clicky will try and wake everybody up and get them outside with her. Um, Everybody, you got to come outside with Clicky right now. Everybody, quick. What's wrong? Are we under attack? Um, n- no, but Klika thinks maybe she can do something, but she doesn't have a very big w- window to do it, and if we pull it, 
if she pulls it off, we'll all be back in Enton right now. There are no windows here. Thank you, Jarzak. What about Anton? What does Anton think? Anton's just curious. He's trying to see, did they, I'm assuming all the goblinoids followed us too? Or no? Yeah, they sort of don't question it. At this point, you guys killed the fucking dragon oppressor in an afternoon. So they're just like, if Klika says she's got one shot, they're like, all right, let's go. Anton's just going to roll with it at this point. Jarzak also kind of assume that we're about to be attacked, so yeah, he's going with it too. Very good. Jarzak will go in the back of the pack to make sure everyone goes. Okay. Including you can Starbreeze. see a very re- I was going to say a very reluctant yep. Starbreeze gets up and follows and joins in, saddling his backpack on and looks to you guys reluctantly and he kind of looks down at his feet. Again, he's destroyed. Like you guys may have killed a dragon, but you also killed a boy's spirit. Starbreeze, Star you, you gotta come with us. We gotta go. The, it, without people like you, people like me don't have any joy in this world. We need you. you. Very confused. Can you roll a deception check? Because I feel like that's a lie. <laughs> Was it a lie? No. No, you need music in the world, you know? Or else I, all, you I, have, it just all, all like Jarzak Jarzak has is killing then. <laughs> I just never Which took over much bring of him the music lover. <laughs> that just Klinka looks uh, back and Jarzak's just ushering the yetis in. Come on, come on! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, no, Jarzak, not the yetis! 24 if it's uh, deception, it would be a 28 if it was persuasion. So I'll let you pick, either way. Okay, well, with that, I mean, he looks to you and he kind of shrugs his shoulders a little bit and then he looks at you again and like almost doing a double take and he's like, wait... You've given me the hardest time out of anybody here. Do you really I, mean that? Yeah, I'm not. It takes me a while to get used to new people, Starberries. I I don't let them in easy. But you've been with us long enough now. We, we got to go. Come on. So he grabs your hand and he says, let's do this. Yes. Does he grab the metal hand or the regular hand? He grabbed the gauntlet and he's like, huh. Yes, why is it so cold? Uh, That that one's not real. See, this is the not joy I'm talking about. The you know, (laughs) this doesn't make music. It's just screechy, crackety, clacky claws, and the fact that his skin's all gray and scarred, and he's just like, "I'm a sad man, Starbreeze. (laughs) A very sad man." (laughs) You got it. If, if you don't tell the story, who will? You were there. Oh, you could be. You were, you were one of the dragon slayers, Starbreeze. Let's be real. Let's go. <laughs> and so with that, everybody circles around Klika, who is doing the best job of faking it till she makes it. Ain't that the way? I hope so. So as Klika sort of embraces the starlight and focuses as everybody seems to be holding on to her in some way, shape or form, a big circular chain of people, 
you experience what Klika experienced, which is sort of like the feeling of becoming nothingness, as if you boil and reduce into a gas instantaneously, while simultaneously melting into your own shoes. And as you guys feel your weight jostle and your cells reshape, reform, you feel like you hear a voice somewhere in the ether cry out, hey, is that my mace? And then you guys appear again <laughs> as if nothing had ever happened in Endon. And as you guys have your eyeballs sort of reconfigure and everything seems to be back to normal here, in the dead of night, you appear on one of the streets of Enton, outside what appears to be the tavern where the dwarves have their usual dwarvish wrestling match. And um, yeah, it, it, it seems like this place is Enton. But unfortunately, judging by the sounds of people kind of scurrying around in the dead of night and the smell of smoke, and all this other stuff, it seems like Enton's not really in a great spot. And as you guys appear out of absolutely nowhere, everybody begins to shriek and scream as if they're under attack. And people begin to run and dart away and hide in corners and crevices between the buildings. And only shortly after you guys regain your own consciousness and understanding that you recognize they're screaming in fear of you, but then they start to sort of like stare at you guys in awe. And people seem to be crowding around you guys. But. What's yeah. the situation? Clicka just waves. Hi, I'm Clicka. And one of the men yells out and he says, there they are. They've returned. And then Clicka throws and up. <laughs> Clicka, I didn't like that. Don't do that again. But with that, um, yeah, you guys are in Enton at like two o'clock in the morning. And as Klika sort of comes back to her positioning here, you borderline pass out. You immediately take a level of exhaustion as you like collapse to the ground, having the entirety of your soul's essence sort of being stretched as far as it can go and then back together at rapid speed. So your body just did a backflip in the fourth dimension. So, yeah, but as you sort of collapse to the ground and everybody else sort of uh, helps to pick you up, tend to you very gently, uh, people from all over start to swarm around you. And it seems like the tumult of appearing through magical teleportation is met only with awe and joy, having seen what appears to be salvation come to save them. As more than one voice say, they'll save us. They can stop the wicked queen herself. Oh no! Hey, easy peasy. <laughs> what up? That answers several questions. Very well. And so with that, I imagine the party and everybody are lifted and brought into the uh, into the tavern that you guys have known so well. And uh, Norhill's family sees him, runs up, grabs onto him, hugs him, smooches him, kick, as well as the uh, duo halflings. Uh, everybody just rushes up to the party, Ock and uh, Igkalath as well. And everybody seems to be so startled by this. And they say, you know, I, I guess it'd probably be Igkalath because I don't feel like doing Ock's voice. And I don't think Ock would be, well, no, I'll tell you what. I'm going to uh -huh. do, uh, do, do Margay because she seems like she'd be the easiest to do this with because I'm not doing Ock like, oh, yeah, you guys did. No, I'm not doing it. So that Ock's picking his nose. He's got a sore throat. Um, but uh, Marga and Caracol rush up to you guys and seeming to be a little bit more fixated on logistics, 
they rush up to you and Caracol being the way he is, he runs up and he just says, how did you get through? The siege is, is too much for even us to get out. And we're practiced rangers, runners, and, and scouts. How, how did you get through? And Margay sort of turns and says, they're magic, duh. And turns to a sort of half in, half out Kalika and says, which spell did you cast? The stars. Get your quick spell. And uh, <laughs> And then Caracol points to your feet and says, Dear gods, she's some sort of strange simian savior. That's what happens <laughs> if you do it too many times. Your body gets jumbled up. <laughs> Somebody in the background throws up in fear. <laughs> but with that, <laughs> with that, Og looks and he says, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And he goes to give a fist bump to his foot. I was going to click and give them a thumbs up with her foot. I don't know who's carrying Klika right thing. now. But... Jarzak would scoop Klika. Yeah, you, you, can, you can be on Jarzak's shoulders. Like old times. I, I mean, like I'm like half in and out of consciousness, so I assume you're just holding me in your arms. So you mentioned yeah, with that, did the Iron Maelstrom uh, come from Dustwind? And so with that, the um, Caracol again being the logistic one sort of steps in and he says, "That's what we're imagining is the case." After we heard that thunderous clap and the place collapsed on itself, we just pulled back here, assuming we were next. And lo and behold, yeah, the Maelstrom's been moving ever since. But I don't know if you've seen the worst of it, but. Queen Garavar has arrived, and she is not not what we expected. Did, did she get my letters? Margay Margay says, I think she wants more than a second letter from you guys, as she's been calling for you guys by name, and she's been uh Yikalith sort of puts a hand on, on little Margay's shoulder and says. There have been executions. People have been killed on a daily basis. Every day you do not surrender yourselves. She kills more. And Murge kind of shrugs and says, we've done our best and we've pulled back all of our defenses. We've put up the illusions that we have, but most of the captains and most of everybody in charge are, are dead and gone. Caracol chimes in excitedly and says, we're doing the best we can. And for what it's worth, I think we have the time to be able to hold this one out. We've caught word that Ascabellum is sending forces over, but the sea itself is, is lousy with strange monsters. We're assuming that as part of the siege and to keep us locked in this area, strange metal monsters and, and, and sea creatures turned metallic have, have haunted our shoreline. Ships can't get in and ships can't get out. But we're hoping that if Azkabellan forces are to arrive anytime soon, they'll be able to at least circumnavigate this and, and take care of it. But the siege is just too great, which is why we're surprised to even see you guys at all. How long will the city supplies last? We've prepared for this sort of thing. And luckily the dwarves, you know, they've been very much so working hard to try to shore up whatever they could we have supplies that could last us at least two, 10 days, perhaps three weeks. 
I know it's not much time, but. And Margay kind of looks like she's about to make a point and then quickly retracts it, closes her mouth quickly, realizing the morbidity of the statement, realizing she was probably going to mention that the less people there are around, the less mouths there are to feed, and thus they might actually have more time. But realizing how morbid that statement is, she pulled it back quick. Auk, on the other hand, says, well, as long as I keep killing people, eh, there's less to feed. This is a good point. Maybe we shouldn't have brought all these people. What about what? escape? Uh, what about escape routes? Uh, the 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 sea is cut off, but uh, 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 tunnel secret passageways, hidden roads. Perhaps we could move some people off uh, to the observatory, or perhaps even as far as what was the name of the one dungeon that we went to like a million years ago? Were you In... talking about the uh, the Gnomish outpost up top? Yeah, Boltzcrag. Yeah, no. yeah, and yeah Boltzcrag. And they start shaking their heads and they say, Boltzcrag and Goggleglind are here. Everybody left. The place got captured and was swarming with the minions. There's, it's been taken. This is all that's left. Where's the Council of Colors? They're still within the sphere. I mean, the sphere. And they're doing the best they can to try to devise some way out of this, but the last I knew is we've turned to Goggle Glint for a lot of ideas. And she says that with uh, very heavy finger quotes where she says, this is starting to look like we're in Endgame. And Caracol puts a hand on her shoulder and says, we're doing the best we can. It doesn't look good, but you all made it. That's a sign. There's room for hope. Well. Given the resources we have and the time that, we had, that we've got, we've got no choice but to fight the siege and do it quickly. Uh, uh, well, what do we have in terms of, you know, the engines of war, uh, battle priests, wizards, and the like? And so with that, they kind of shrug to themselves and say, most of the watch, most of the captains and soldiers are gone. This is a citizen-run militia me and Caracol got, we got promoted with the death of our five higher-ups. We are some of the highest-ranking officers left in the city. This needs to end. If it's us she wants, this was a potential to stop all this madness. We should go to her. And with that, Caracol lifts a hand up and he says, I think it deserves to be noted that she is a lot more powerful than we thought. And we have seen her publicly execute people by uttering a single word. I don't think that you guys going to see her is the right idea. I think coming here miraculously from the stars is a blessing from the gods themselves. And I think that handing yourselves over would surely sow our fate, seal our fate. And we know from the King of Ascabella that she is no mortal woman. She's a demon of the lower realms. 
even if we make the assumption that she would accept parlay in good faith, uh, there's no way that we could negotiate a favorable outcome. I doubt uh, that she'll accept anything other than total surrender. Yeah, it doesn't mean she'll even keep her word. She'll just right. take the town and us. And Yigkala says, I haven't seen such evil utterances. I've spent much of my life as, well, and she looks around you guys and nobody else, and she says, I've seen many things. I've seen great death and pain. But this one wasn't lying, as she kind of points to, to Marge and says, we've seen people drop dead from the utterance of a few words, their soul nearly leaving their body as she utters some strange phrases and bits. It seems almost like she has some unraveling powers of people's souls. She can do it individually. I don't particularly know what this means, but I do know that she is, again, far more powerful than any of us have given her credit. And her forces, they're iron maelstrom forces, yes, not flesh and blood. Yes, and they outnumber us 10 to 1. And it seems like they have reserves in Eagle Heart. So even if we did get out, we wouldn't have anywhere to go. Let's see, Bob Ed. Focus on keeping uh, light scouts upon the walls. Uh, folks who can keep their heads down and not make themselves a target and move back and forth quickly. Uh, otherwise, get everybody uh, who's an engineer or an, or an architect off of whatever they're doing and to building siege engines and ammunition. Uh, even if it means so we need to start tearing down unused houses uh, for materials. Good. So with that... Caracol again nods a couple times and says, that's what they've been doing. But with each new effort that we fail, it seems like something's constantly here to sabotage our efforts. Things go awry on a daily basis, and we're starting to wonder if there are spies within the city. Then that is indeed something that we can look into. If it's Perhaps. not otherworldly forces, spies can be rooted out. Perhaps. And Margay says, but didn't you have to go meet with the council about something? Yes. That's right, but if we can't get through the siege, then I'm not sure uh, well, what our business with the, how far our business with the council is going to go. And so with that, they kind of all just shrug and everybody recognizes the futility of any discussion we have. And it seems that like the next logical step would likely be to at least go drop off the blood with the council and at least see what they've been working on. And so with that, as the party <clears throat> vacate and start heading off to the... Um, to the uh, council at the sphere you guys are met by tons of people who seem to be so like absolutely blown away to even be seeing you in person and 
it looks like you guys bring them hope just by even existing in the area. But again, seeing your own looks on your faces of like, ah, shit. Like, it, it's very easy for everybody else to read that um, the situation is grim, you know? But as you guys enter the sphere and go through the strange transmogrifying to fit through and go into the chamber, you guys are met by the individuals of the different colored robes, as well as a series of very uh, fast, what is it, fastidious? Fastidiously working gnomes who seem to be wearing odd baubles, goggles, and glints. And they seem to be all working, devising blueprints and plans. And you see smoke and things kind of half burning inside of here as if people are working haphazardly with whichever space they have and designing small models and things are whizzing and whirring around the room the entire time. But as you guys approach and enter, the members of the colored robes seem to uh, reach out to you guys and uh, alarm everybody that you're here. So with that, you guys sort of have the floor. We have returned with the task. Oh, that they kind of all let out cheers and and everything. The entire group of them start to like shout and cheer as if they've been waiting for any excuse to be like happy about anything. And with that, people rant and rave and say, and you know, people kind of clarify and they say, the white dragon's blood, you found it and you've brought it back. Yes, look toward Jarzak with his jar of Uh, yeah, let me, hold on, let me find it in our cool new bag. No, not that one, the other one. Oh, no, that's the jar of graveyard dirt for Anton's dark rituals. (laughs) And here's the jar of blood. Just rituals. It was like he's been raising the dead. But as you pull out the the mason jar of blood here, one of the gnomes rushes over to grab it, and um, you guys recognize from descriptions and from having met him in Goggleglint, this appears to be the Lord of Goggleglint himself, Bugfiddle Clamorclang. And as he rushes over to grab it, he smacks it out of your hand out of excitement, and it goes hurtling towards the ground. Oh, I was gonna say I lift it up higher so he can't reach it. Well, that's where the unfortunate part comes in. An extending, grabbing arm reaches out to do so and smacks it out of your hand. And as it goes hurtling towards the ground, he reaches out with a second extendo hand and catches it like a little catcher's mitt. And he looks at you with a smile on his face and he gives you sort of like a gotcha look as his eyebrows bounce around on his face. Oh, bud. Yes. Oh, you scared me. We can't. I don't think we could do that, too. I don't think... I don't think we have another dragon in us right now. He looks around the room and he says, blood doesn't go bad. At least you know where to get more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if... Oh, yeah, true. That's how it works. That's how blood works with dead things. And with that, they all kind of nod in agreement. And with that, they immediately rush off. At least uh, Clamor Clank does. And they start immediately going down to alchemy labs that they have on the lower levels of the sphere here. Sort of like the rooms that you guys stayed in with the weird beach scenes. But with that, they start going to work immediately. And the members of the colored robes who are sort of overwatching the city turn to you guys and they say, so we imagine you've seen the situation outside? We've heard. He said, yeah. every night, 
She haunts the walls. She haunts the cities, flying on bat wings. She executes our citizens one by one, delighting in it and antagonizing us. And one of the other gnomes chimes in and says, there are spies, spies within the city, all over the place. Everything we try to do is falling apart. But that's why we have a uh, <clears throat> plan. And they'll kind of nod a couple times at one another and say, it's a good plan, not a great plan. But if we are trying to keep our goal, we need to do this plan. And they all look at you, leaning forward with their eyeballs wide open, and they all nod very slowly and robotically. And they yeah. say, the plan okay. to kill all the spies. Kick. Where's they the kick? Turn, <laughs> they turn to Jarzak and they say, it seems our port is no longer in use. Surely your boat is now useless. Just come right out with it. What are you suggesting? Nothing at all. We are my just pointing out how there's fine. no use for that boat. No, my boat should be per perfectly fine and useful. Why? True. But with the siege going on in the city, you cannot leave through the water. But the siege isn't in the water. It's on the land, isn't it? But are they in the water? We've heard that they're using strange metal monsters to block the port. Right? Yes, which is why you can't leave through the water with your boat. Okay, so yes, let's come up with a different plan. True. We should come up with a way to circumvent that issue. Yes, so we go out the front gate and leave on foot. What? Enough circular speech. Say what you mean plainly. Is Aldo here? Oh, no. I was going to get some candy while I was passed out. Son of a gun. And with that, they just say, to put it plainly, you should come back in a few days. Surely that blood will be of better use for you then. And maybe we will have thought of a way around any issues we might have had with the siege. But we surely could not find a way to fix the boat issue. For the siege in the water is just too much. And clearly we cannot leave on foot. Oh, Klika gets oh, it. Oh, we fly out. Oh, Klika gets it because there might be a spy here. So you can't say what you want us to. And then Jarzak says, and then we could fly out. And Klika just looks at Jarzak. An well, orchestra of eight coughing gnomes in unison, yeah. just fucking long. Just... <laughs> yeah, but we should probably kill the spies before we say a plan, guys. Like, like I said first, we gotta kill the spies. Which one of you is the spy? Times in immediately. Like I think a spy would have said that. Hmm. Seems kind of spyish. I want to roll an insight. Writing a letter to the queen about how we're going to escape. That's a eleven on insight. To is is that is he the spy? I don't think he is, and you don't either. Ah. 
But with that, they advise you go back to your room and suggest that staying at the tavern will probably do well to bolster everybody's spirits and to help at least give you guys some well-deserved rest after everything you've been through. Of course. So my question is, what would you guys like to do at the tavern? What would the night at the tavern look like for you guys? Uh, Norhill spends all night talking uh, logistics uh, with his council and any useful professionals. I'm gonna find anyone from the crew of the ship. Okay. Yeah, the first mate is, has been hanging out at yeah. that tavern just because that's where everybody is, and that's kind of the only people he knows. So Conrail Sieve, the uh, lucky dog himself, is happy to see your arrival. And once you meet with him, he kind of gives you a weird look and he says, okay, I'm just saying, I have no problems with gnomes, okay? No issues with them. But, but if they wait, keep you have, hands you have on no your issues boat, with them? They're touching the boat? They're Did you cut their it. hands off? I mean, I tried, but they're so slippery. They are so. They fast. keep using those extendo hands, and I can't. I can't fight them all. They're yeah, all smacking they're... me from yeah. ten feet away. Uh, okay, I I get that. You're forgiven for not cutting their hands off when you should have. You know the rules of the boat. What's he says? But what's the actual status been... on the water? It's it's lousy with strange metal creatures. I'm sure you've heard the rumors already, but yep, just making sure it's seen, real. Yeah, we've seen strange things that look like mixes between sharks and octopus and, and, and strange packs of giant fish with sharp metal mouths. And it's just but they all sit lying and waiting just off the shoreline, just sitting there staring at the bay, waiting for us to leave. Wow. Okay, that's not great. That's not, you know, I was hoping it was fake news, but apparently people were telling the truth. Okay. And so um, with that, uh, so that's what you do. Um, and then, yeah, sorry. He mentions that they've been making adjustments and modifications to it. And there's this very strange giant, I don't want to say it. It's like a giant like cloth tarp that they have. Uh, and every time he asks about it, they just say that it's supplies. And when he asks what kind of supplies, they say important supplies. And they say what kind of important supplies. And they say classified important supplies. Okay, the and he says, are making adjustments to the boats. To the boat. Like, uh, uh, okay, so they're doing more than just touching it. They're they're fiddling with it. What? How did you let this happen? And he just says, "I mean, they were nice about it." And they keep... oh, shit. They <laughs> all, that's how they weasel uh, their way in. They're so nice. Anyway, but with that, and he says, and a couple of them are putting on these weird swimming gear, and they've been going underneath the boat and attaching strange metal pods. I don't know what it means, but. And they don't they get attacked. They keep telling me I've got nothing to worry about. And I think I don't because it's not my boat, but I think you might have something to worry about. Yeah, well, it's you're still the first mate. You you gotta worry about this too. You're 
you're the wingman. You need to know what's going on with the boat almost as much as I do. Listen, don't tell me my business. I'm here for the boat, not for you, okay? But if the boat's gone, I'm out. You said you didn't want a job anymore? Is that what you said? I mean, you know, that's such a strong line Mm. of implications there. I, You know, I can't hardly keep up with that. Why don't I go take a look at the boat for you while you get? Oh, some well, no, it's it's way too it's way too late now. We might as well just drink. The, the gnomes already have it. They already have it. It's too late. We'll look at it in the morning. So, fair enough. And then I imagine Cleek is going to bed. Cleek mm-hmm. would like mm-hmm. to introduce uh, Rakrata to, I guess, Marge and Caracol. And she'll be like, um, this this is Rakrata. She's the leader of the um Dedrica that we showed up with. Um, if you could take care of her and her people, I'm sure they'll be of some help. So Chief Rakrata does a deep bowing swoop there, and she like lowers herself down to the ground and she says, I can offer my services. If you have crops, if you have any plants, I can supply us with more food if you give me time. I speak to the earth, and the earth does well to heed my call and to do as I say. We will do well if you allow me my my peace and my space, and my people are sworn to help anyone who flies the banner of these people. Cleo leans over to Marga and just whispers, you gotta gotta be careful because she's got a bad hip. Don't bring it up. It's not our fault. Very well. Um, and so uh, what about Anton? I, I click would also before right. she w- swanders off to bed in her very distressed state is going to just find Starbreeze was going to try and be cute. Is too tired to try and be cute. Just grabs his loot, casts mending on it, gives it back to him. People here would like to hear your songs, and then just walks off. Okay. Anton Very wants well. to get the idea of, like, what's the, what's the status of just, like, healers in the city, and, like, how many wounded do they have? How many dead? Um, trying to bring some control to that madness alone. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the working wounds of this place are being well enough tended to by the alchemists and people who are trained in that sort of first aid kind of care. And especially having all the members of Glint having come here, it definitely seems a lot easier for them to be able to handle this. But obviously, if you offered your services, a lot of the people who are inside the tavern right now are soldiers and they're kind of hanging here with Margay and Caracol. And again, working alongside the dwarves who have decided that they were going to try to help out with watching the front as well. This place has kind of almost become like a new headquarters for mercenary work and for like sort of the unification of all forces moving forward. So there are wounded in here. Okay, he'll go in and he'll make sure to like keep a couple spells like ready like if they need more rations of food and water he can of course cast create food and water any prayers of healing provide it i was gonna say you could probably cast the prayer of healing and cast the uh the create food and water thing you bet like the beginning of the night and that way everybody gets to eat yeah i could do both 
Fair enough. Okay. And then Nor Hill stays up helping out with the uh, planning of things. Um, what does Darzak do after that? Do you and uh, the first mate just drink? Uh, yeah, Jarzak's gonna want to go check out the boat. So he's probably only okay. gonna have like one drink with the first mate and then wander off. And I will say, because Norhill and I imagine Anton are gonna be the only ones who are still up at this point or around, uh, mm-hmm. at a certain point after Kleeka repaired the loot and went to bed. Starbreeze does take to the small stage that is also a wrestling arena and he begins to play a song and he begins to sort of uh, allude to you guys and your greatness and the act of slaying the dragon or what he imagines happened and he starts to really play it up and ham it up in a way that bolsters the spirits of everybody in the tavern and it seems to really you know get a rise out of everybody and the place seems to be a lot more cheerful with food from Anton healing from Anton and the music the return of the heroes it's just it seems like you guys have given a second wind to this place um but people seem to be very well enchanted by his music and what he's playing and having heard him play that wonderful song about the fall of glory wake before hearing him play this song it almost feels like you hear like a more true soul to his music as if he's playing not like an instrument, but he's playing from his heart. And it feels like for the first time you hear him actually cut loose and use his true voice and its true essence. And it's sort of like watching him truly become star breeze. And thus a star is born. Um, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, and he's going to Hollywood, but with that, um, yeah. Uh, as Jarzak leaves and goes down to the port, you can tell that there's already, you can hear them banging with hammers and stuff down at the bottom by your boat. And the wave wraith is just covered in gnomes who are working very fast and doing repairs to this thing, but under something of a tent as if like, it's got like just a big giant drape draped over the top of it, but you can hear banging and screwing noises and hammering boards, splintering things, breaking. You're a chicken running around. It's, it's mayhem. What the f- but yeah, so you approach the boat, and one of the gnomes comes rushing out onto the gangplank, and he just looks down at you, and he says, who are you? This is my boat. Who are you? He's like, I don't see your name on it. Oh, oh outplayed. I cast darkness on him. <laughs> he shrieks and falls into the water. Screams about the drow. <laughs> Do the metal sharks go for him? Oh, you guys aren't that far out. Oh, okay. I, well, I, I didn't know if metal. anything that hits the water they're going for, if it's just when they get closer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that you can hear him splashing and splut- sputtering. And he's like, I didn't know who you were. We were just under secrecy. And so from about 15 feet below you off the gangplank, he's still swatting around in the water. I remove the darkness as soon go. as I hear the splash. <laughs> just And he just starts gurgling on the water and asking for help. Yeah, I'll I'll reach down and help him out of the water. Okay. And so with that, he uh, looks to you with a strange and puzzled look, and he says, that really escalated a lot quicker than I was anticipating. He's yeah, like, of next, course next I know time, who you are. Yeah, then don't be so rude. It's my boat. He's like, there are it's spies fine. It's, yeah, everywhere. No, it's, yes. And am I the spy? He disappeared months ago and just arrived today through a siege. Yes, and am I, I the, to bring it to you. Are you this? Wait, you're the spy. 
I've lived here the entire he, time. He puts his hand on <laughs> onto his weapon. <laughs> it's you, isn't it? He jumps back into the water. <laughs> but I pull him back out. No, no, no. I'm joking. See? If you bring a joke too far, it, it gets a little heated. So then he says, I'll just tell you whatever you need to hear. Okay? Just please stop dunking me in the water. Can I just take a quick peek? See, see what's going on? And then I'll leave. So with that, he looks around and he says, okay, fine. But you have to pretend to be a gnome. Okay, fine. You have to pretend to be a gnome. You're like, I know. They don't know I'm a halfling yet. Oh, God, you're a halfling. He's like, do you know how uncomfortable these shoes are? Okay. You look down uh, and see hair bulging out of the shoe. How do, how do I get to that height? Just think short thoughts. And he lifts up the tarp and starts pulling you in. And yeah, okay. from what it looks like, there's a giant tarp set up in here that's laying across the floor of the uh, poop deck, as it were. And it seems to have ropes attached to like every corner of the railings to this main floor. And it seems like it's full of some sort of like strange sloshing liquid. And it's like just this big wet bladder that seems to stretch like the entire length of the deck. And it seems folded over a little bit. So this is a gigantic thing. And apart from that, there are uh, big ballistas that have been sort of like attached to the front and to the back. And it seems like they're just hard at work really loading this place up. And so as soon as you enter and see these things, all the gnomes stop and there's just like not a sound and they all stand perfectly still looking at you. <laughs> and just nobody does. They just look right at you and they just stop. Hammers and hands, nails and everything. They uh, just look he- hello. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> Your the friends know me. <laughs> you're gonna be Fubani. yeah but i uh, i don't know if they've heard about him being bad <laughs> so i don't you're want to disadvantage this like... <laughs> Dis- disadvantage okay i mean oh, I I gotta, I, one of them was a nat 20 uh but uh soft 20 is the other with that they all just like stay silent and the guy next to you, the little gnome next to you, says he's been victim of one of the experimental alchemy labs. They started working on the potion. Yes, I know. It happens. It's terrifying looking, but it, it'll go away in a month. So I've been told. Yes, he speaks what? fluent gnomish. No, the, the potion made me forget. He's <laughs> Dutch. Yeah. Oh, God, it's changing. I'm so nervous. <laughs> That he just they all just kind of like nod and shrug and they're like, well, it checks out. So they just start start going back to work. And then with that, he says, I didn't think that would work. I just like wipe my forehead. I'm like, that was close. <laughs> okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> with that, Good the, work. Uh, gnome, the gnome starts leading you downstairs to the lower deck, and you can see that the walls have been reinforced with like steel plates. And with that, he sort of uh, starts talking to one of the gnomes and like stops him with a look, like a voice of authority. And he says, you there, did you finish underneath the deck? And they say, aye, their elemental crystals have been loaded in properly. It should be ready for the day of flight. And that with the gnome looks to you with a look of like, very good, the day of flight indeed. 
Yes, very good. <laughs> and then the gnome says, who's the new guy? I'm Durbani. I think it sounds kind of familiar. You know, I had an uncle for Bonnie. Oh, yes, not me. Who Bonnie with an eye with a heart, with a little heart <laughs> above it, not with a dot. Uh, and that's the that same as your uncle. Oh, weird. <laughs> but with that, um, the gnome leads you back out and gives you sort of a look. And he says, I don't think you were supposed to see any of this, so pretend to be surprised. Not right now. Stop looking surprised now. I'm saying look surprised for the I council. Am, I am not surprised. I work here. He says, that's pretty good. Your gnomish is flawless. Yes. But with that, um, uh, so at that point, Jarzak probably heads back and starts getting ready for bed. Uh, yeah. You know, he'll break her. He'll be like, oh, no, I, oh, I'm sorry to startle you, but I'm not actually a gnome. Uh, do you guys need security or anything here? Because I can get the crew to kind of watch the docks. And so with that, he just kind of shrugs and he says, I think they expect that whatever it is we're doing is probably to get around their fish defenses out there. They can assume we're probably not going to make it. And for that reason, they abandoned looking after this project. I think we're fine. Perfect. Okay. Great. And so don't let us die. And do, say, do good work, please. He says, I'm not even in charge of this. He's like, I just bring Don't. everybody coffee when they're thirsty and, and need someone to pick them up. Then I'm make sure they all have coffee. Why are you not working? I'm out of here. Goodbye. As you dunk them back into the water. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, as the uh, party are back at the tavern, who's the last to go to bed? Hopefully Jarzak, because I'm getting back late, I assume, from a gnomish adventure. <laughs> I imagine that Norhill is probably like wrapping up by the time Jarzak. Would Starbreeze still be playing when I got back? I imagine so. He's probably wrapping up once everybody's headed to bed, or at least the last people. Yeah, I, but it seems like listened he's... to a couple songs. Okay, and I'd say by the end of the night, it seems like he's almost so impressed by his playing and how it's changed that he himself is like staying up just because he can't put it down. But again, by the end of the evening, it seems like a small little audience of people have been personally applauding him and paying him great attention. So with that, he starts heading off to bed as well. And you, uh, yeah. Okay. So um, with that, yeah. So I guess everybody goes to bed, correct? Can I get a perception check from everybody? And Klika has it at disadvantage. Sweet old exhaustion. Well, they still beat me. Uh, seven. Four. Okay. Sixteen. Okay. What about um, Anton? What did you get on the perception? One second. It's a little slower here. Come on, iPad. Got nine. Oh, boy. And you said four for Klika? Oh, yeah. What's up? So with that, the party 
uh, awaken to the smell of fire and smoke and the tavern itself uh, burning. The fire is intense, raging, and it seems to be even peeking up through the floorboards onto the second floor where you guys are. And everybody wakes up in alarm to this, apart from Klika. And so everybody has the opportunity to run out of the place, as it seems like everybody within is just sprinting out, jumping out windows. And there's already a bucket brigade that seems to be well in effect tossing buckets onto the place. But as you guys leave the building, you recognize yeah. that out of the full cast of characters, Charizak would have outside... Wait, what? Charizak would have picked up Klika. Well, that's the funny part. When you go to Klika's room, you can see somebody is inside of her room with her. And you can see through the smoke, if you'd like to stay in the burning building, you can, you can see that she's in bed and that somebody seems to be standing over her. Hey, what are you doing in here? And so as you rush in, you can see Starbreeze is standing over her. And as he's standing over her, you can tell that he is like sort of standing in a way that once she wakes up, he's going to try to keep her held down as if like, even if she wakes up, he's just going to try to like cover her with a blanket or something and like tie her down to the bed or something like that. And as the building's on fire and you rush in there after and see him standing there, what would you like to do? I pull out uh, my new mace and hit him with it. Oh, no. Domero's luck. Let's go. The 16. Yeah. So you smack him over the back of the head without any difficulty. He doesn't seem to even be moving in any way other than just to like make sure Klika's tied down. 10 damage. And I'll attack him again if that does knock him out. Oh, I thought you were going to do the damage to him. I said 10 damage. Oh, sorry. I thought you said end then damage. And I'm like, oh. I mean, usually. <laughs> fucking, I think so. No, I, <laughs> I think it's usually the way it goes. But with that, as you smack him in the head, he lets out a yelling cry and he just like grabs onto his head and he turns around to you and he looks at you as if like seeing double vision and he stumbles and falls down onto the bed next to Klika. And Klika, having a grown man land on you, wakes you up. To the smell of smoke, fire screams in the building falling apart. And you recognize that Jarzak is standing over your body, which is tied down by the sheets and the blankets. And Starbreeze with a nice smack in his head to go along with his black eye and his fat lip. Um, and he seems to be there screaming and he says, what am I doing here? Um, did you come to wake me up to let me know there was a he fire? Came, he came here to kill you, Klika. Now I've got to kill him. And he says, as he holds his hands up, he says, wait, 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 wait. He says, I wouldn't do that. Ready's the mace for a second attack. Why? Why wouldn't you do that? As the floorboards beneath your feet begin to creak and groan under the fire. We got to go. I'll grab Klika and start running out of the building. Jarzak, okay. like, you and meet so us outside and Klika's going to dimension door out with Starbreeze, I guess. Okay. Okay. As Jarzak's left behind. Uh, Jarzak, can you do me a quick perception check? Four. Okay. 
And then can you do me an athletics check? <laughs> 11. Okay. And so with that, as you start to rush down the stairs, the top board snaps and you're able to just jump over the rest of the stairs, falling to a rolling tumble. And once you get down to the bottom of the stairs, you can tell that nobody's in the building. And if they are, like, it's already too late, but the ceiling seems to be groaning under its own weight. And it seems like this place is probably going to come tumbling down. But as you go to start running out of the place, you hear a voice call from the flames in the faintest of whispers. And it seems to be some cackling woman's voice that yells out to you, please don't go. It's so nice in here. And as you turn back at the top of the stairs, you can see a horned woman who happens to look very similar to the queen standing there. Charzak takes a knee. My queen. Oh my God. And she looks at you with strange feline looking eyes and a smile filled with barbed teeth. And she starts walking down the stairs towards you. Jarzak waits. The building is going to collapse in under itself. Would you like to stay inside the building or would you like to leave? Uh, we'll chat outside and he sprints out. <laughs> And as you go sprinting out the door, the building falls onto itself. And in a conflagration, just a big giant gusting whoosh, the uh, the fire kind of shoots out from the bottom of the building and just like scoots out and dust and black smoke rise up everywhere. And everybody be, seems to be like panicking and running around and freaking out, trying to figure out what's going on. And people are doing head counts. And one thing that comes startling to mind as you guys are standing around looking for each other is somebody is missing from your group. And as you're looking around, we see Auk, we see Yukalith, we see Margay, we see Caracol, but we do not see Kick the Click. Where's Kick? And as you think back to, you know, the situation at hand, with what had happened and jumping, you know, from room to room, you sort of remember in the faintest vision of your mind, having tripped over something in the hallway. And once you kind of recollect what's going on in there, it might've been a leg and not a sort of a human leg or even a Thrykreen leg, but a wooden leg. And as you look back at the burning building, you could swear you see boards moving around in the fire. I rush in, try to get to it. Well, that's where we're going to end it. Hey, everyone. I want to thank you all for listening to another episode of the podcast. It really means a lot to me to have everybody listening in. And if you have anything you'd like to say, any comments or anything like that, shoot me a tweet over at ygrognard on Twitter, or you can even send me an email at younggrognard at gmail.com. I look forward to everything you guys have to say, and it's always a pleasure to engage with anybody listening to the show. And as always, be sure to keep things... Dungeons.